We've got some more untold Civil War coming at you, and this month we're going to remember the Alamo. Yes, the Alamo did have Civil War connections. But before we do that, I'd like to announce that I now have a Patreon account. This account will allow you to support the show with a monthly subscription. With four different tiers to choose from, becoming a Patreon supporter will allow you to get advance notice of any interviews I have coming up. And if you're in the second, third, or fourth tier, you'll be able to submit questions before the interview. I'm doing this because one of the greatest things for me about starting this podcast was getting access to all these amazing, great experts, and I want to share that access with you. I'd really appreciate if you'd use the link in the show notes to sign up on Patreon and support the show. But now, take a position along the palisade with David Crockett, wait for Travis's command, and let's loose a volley into some untold civil war. This is the Untold Civil War podcast, and we have back on the show the man who is bringing the Civil War back to life with the awesome app Gettysburg, A Nation Divided. I mean, it's the Battle of Gettysburg in augmented reality. It's a Civil War buff's dream come true, and I'm glad to be a partner in this endeavor. Welcome back, Mr. McGar. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, but today, we're not talking about Gettysburg. We're actually talking about the Alamo and the Alamo's connections to the Civil War. The Alamo really needs no introduction, but still, let's, let's start from the beginning. When was the Alamo constructed? What was it used for? And what happened by the time of the Civil War? What was its purpose? So the Alamo was constructed in, in uh, the early 1700s, 1716 to 1718. It, they went, worked on it a long time. It was constructed by missionaries who were trying to convert the uh, Indians to Christianity. And uh, it was uh, one of five missions in a string along the San Antonio River in San Antonio. And the reason it was in San Antonio was because the Comanche Indians had run the Spaniards of the rest of Texas, and they, would, they, they didn't go any further than San Antonio. And that also was the beginning of why the Comanche Indians was the beginning of why uh, the Anglos were able to show up in, uh, the settlers from the United States were able to show up in Texas, was because the Spaniards were tired of having the Comanches eat their lunch every day, and, and they, uh, they wanted a buffer between the Comanches and themselves, and, and they figured that the, uh, the settlers would be that buffer. <clears throat> and if the settlers could tame Texas, then they could get more immigrants to go into Texas so that they could cement their right that they own it, because it was under contention with the Louisiana Purchase, whether it was actually sold to the United States or not sold to the United States. And so the, the Spaniards contended that, that it was never sold, that they always owned it. And the French said, uh, you know, we sold that thing and we don't care about it. And the Americans said, well, that's part of our manifest destiny. We're going to own that place. You know, the very, very beginnings of it was always contentious. There was, and, and, the, and the Spaniards and the, and the Mexicans never trusted that the Americans coming in there weren't going to cause trouble because they caused trouble everywhere they went. And uh, they didn't want to have their territory stolen from them which they, they assumed that's why the Texians were there, why the, the settlers from the United States were there. And, and the settlers from the United States were, were largely borderers. They were uh, mostly from Scotland, places like that. People that whenever somebody moved in next door to you, you moved to the border, you know, you got away from them. And so they, they, they really didn't like uh, rule of government. And so when they first moved into Texas, rule of government was very light and basically self-governed. And then when Santa Ana came into power, he uh, declared that he was in control of Texas and then uh, decided to, to take back the cannons that the settlers had to protect themselves from the Indians and, and tax them. And taxing them was, you know, 
not not acceptable. One of the things that, that people rarely understand is that that there were almost as many slaves in Texas as there were settlers in Texas in 1836. Oh wow! That that was a stati- statistic that kind of surprised me. When you think about Texas in the 1830s, you think you know frontier fighting Indians that sort of stuff. But but toward the coast, there were big cotton farms there, and they produced lots and lots of cotton, and they had lots of slaves. That and that was the beginnings of the Civil War, too, was when Texas got its independence, then they immediately wanted to apply to, to become a state. And that would, was going to throw the balance between the free states and, and the slave state off. And so it, it started that conflict. And so one of the things about history that's always interesting to me is, is that everything is tied to everything. You know, people tend to look at history as a series of singular events. You know, uh, you had the Texas Revolution, you had the War with Mexico, you had the Civil War, all separate events. But they were all strung together. And, and they actually, if you want to go far enough back in history, the reason why all this happened was because the Spaniards bought horses to, te- to the United States or to the, to the New World, and the Indians adapted them, adopted them. And the Comanches, instead of adopting the horse, adapting the horse to their culture, adapted their culture to the horse. So they changed dramatically from sort of the street people of the Indian culture to the more fearsome like cavalry since Genghis Khan. And they took over thousands and thousands of miles of territory and uh, um, just absolutely just wiped out the Spaniards every time the Spaniards tried to, to fight them. Right, the, and the Cossacks so, of the Plains, right? The, exactly, yeah. exactly. They, they could ride a thousand miles in a very short time. Every, every brave would have five horses and they would trade horses as they ran and let the horses rest while they ran and they would rest while they ran. And so they, you know, show up a thousand miles from where they'd been a day, a day or two before and then kick your butt and then go on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so they, they were intense. They yeah. were very, very intense. They ran off the Apaches. They ran off everybody they came in contact. They, they were uh, ferocious. You talk about the butterfly effect, you know? Yeah. So somebody brings a horse to the new world and then all of a sudden everything turns upside down because that horse got into the hands of the people who understood what to do with it. So anyway, and, the, and then the, the settlers who were in Texas were, were very tough people and they fought like the Indians fought. They, they were guerrilla warfare. So they were able to uh, keep the Comanches at bay and then ultimately... Uh, take Texas from Mexico. So anyway, long story short, but the the other part too is that once the federals came in, once Texas became a state, then several people came into the state who later became really famous, like Robert E. Lee and and Albert Sidney Johnston. And all these people became commanders of of garrisons in Texas. And one of those garrisons was, was the Alamo. And Robert E. Lee was the, the head of the Texas department, and he ruled that department out of the Alamo. They had The Alamo at that time, after the war, was a uh, logistics depot. So they brought stuff from the coast, from Galveston, up to uh, uh, San Antonio and kept it in the Alamo as like a warehouse. And then they, they took it out from there to distribute it. The other, other character who was in there, too, was this guy named Jefferson Davis, and Jefferson Davis founded the uh, Camel Corps for the Alamo and then later moved it to a town called Bernie and, and installed himself in this hotel called the Kendall Inn and uh, ran the Camel Corps from the Kendall Inn just a couple of miles outside of San Antonio. It's, it's about 30, 40 miles outside of San Antonio. Wow. So uh, you could even say that the Alamo, famous in the Texas Revolution, but ended up being sort of a a training ground for some of these famous generals, leaders that would end up serving in the Civil War. 
Absolutely. And all of those generals also served in the, in the war with Mexico. Again, you know, it, it just it was this, this continuation of this line, an unbroken line. A lot of those generals who fought together in the, in the war with Mexico, Pickett was the first person to get to the top of Chapultepec in the Battle of, of Mexico City. He was the one to get over the wall in Chapultepec. He was a very big hero. And uh, when he was at, 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 uh, in the Civil War, he never got a chance to become that hero again until the day of Gettysburg. Then he turned into a goat. <laughs> you know? and, he, yeah. and he never was really happy about that they called it Pickett's Charge. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, uh, in, in Texas, uh, John Bell Hood was here too, you know? And so all these people were here in Texas roaming around doing things. And Albert Sidney Johnston and uh, Robert E. Lee were in a little, little bitty fort in Mason, Texas, called Fort Mason, and when the war broke out. And they were there with their families living in this dog trot of a fort. A dog trot is a, a building that has two sides and it has a, a roof between them so the air can flow through. And so the Lees were on one side of the dog trot and the Johnstons were on the other side. And their kids were all mixed together and everything. And when the war started and they packed up into a wagon and headed back to uh, Virginia and Lee became the commander of the army of Northern Virginia. And so it's just a very, very interesting place. And I've been to all these places and that fort actually got knocked down and was just a a pile of rocks. And and, um, years ago they they rebuilt. It's real interesting to stand there in Mason, Texas, and realized the next place he showed up was was at the head of the Confederate Army. Right. <laughs> Very interesting. Right. Well, what about um, this thing you mentioned before about how Texas essentially part of starting the Civil War because it was one of those states that offset that awkward balance in America. Exactly. Can talk a little bit more on that. Yeah, yeah. And so the, one of the interesting things that has been lost to history is that before the Civil War, a lot of people in the South realized that slavery had to end, that mechanization was coming, that they had all, all their capital tied up in human beings, and their property was worthless without those human beings. But if they couldn't get capital from those human beings, meaning like you could go out and sell a, an acre of land, but you couldn't sell off your, especially if slavery was illegal, if slavery turned out to be illegal, you couldn't sell those people anymore. And so all this money that you had tied up in those people disappeared overnight. And they knew that mechanization, industrialization was going to change how farming happened with cotton. And the whole process was going to happen and it was going to go away. And this guy, let me find his name. This guy wrote this book. He was from the South and his family actually owned slaves. And he wrote this incredible book. Here it is. Uh, The Impending Crisis of the South and How to Meet It. His name was Hinton Rowan Helper. And he wrote about how slavery was driving the South to ruin because they had no industry, they had nothing. One of the things like uh, Massachusetts, half of Massachusetts industrial output was eight times the size of the entire industrial output of the South. Wow. Just half of Massachusetts industrial output. So in any case, the once that imbalance happened and the politicians started trying to struggle with what to do about slavery and how they were going to deal with it, one of the solutions was to raise taxes to reimburse these people for their property, which was slaves. And nobody in the North and nobody in the South wanted to pay that tax. 
And so then it, it became an intractable situation because if you're going to confiscate my property, which they considered humans to be their property, you got to pay me for it. And so it, it was an intractable situation. And so the, the spark of it was Texas independence and Texas trying to be a part of the union. And so now it's going to become a strong political issue where we're going to butt heads about that and somebody's got to win. It's not going to be a compromise. And so that, that inevitably led toward the Civil War. And I don't think anybody at that time understood what, what the implications of it was. But that, looking back at it, you can see clearly that that was what was happening. All the generals who fought in the Civil War went up in, in the war with Mexico. They got their training at the war in Mexico. They also understood what the other guys were doing. So when, when you're standing at Gettysburg looking across that field, you know what that guy on the other side is going to do because you've seen him do it a million times. Right. You slept with him. You, you went to West Point with him. You know, all those things. Very rare in a, a war situation where you had such an intimate knowledge of the people who were on the other side. You know, we had to do intelligence to figure it out. But all you had to do in the Civil War was say, you used to be in the tent with so-and-so. What, what, what do you think he's going to do? Well, right. hell, he does this every time, you know? Yeah. This is what's right. going to happen, you know? Kind of reminds me of the, the movie Patton where he yells, you know, Rommel, I read your book, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, same idea. They, they knew so, each other, you know, even more than that. They didn't just read each other's books. They yeah, they they were they were friends. They understood how they how how they were going to operate. You know, all that just made the, the connection to the Civil War really interesting to me because I, I started out doing the Alamo and I, and I've I've worked on the Alamo. The first time I, I did the Alamo was uh, for a, a CD-ROM set back in ninety four ninety five, and so I, I really knew the uh, content of the Alamo really well of Texas history. And I realized at that time that that this was the precursor for the Civil War. And again, people tend to look at these things as being, you know, independent events. And this had nothing to do with that, but they all had something to do with it. And, and like the times we live in now, everything that happens today happened because of Vietnam or happened because of this or happened because of that. And the things that'll happen in the future are happening because gonna happen because of what's happening today. Uh, right. the, the divisions, the all all the issues that are happening, they all will carry forward. They do not stop with one event. You know, right. uh, I mean, there's a lot of people that say we're still fighting the Civil War, and I believe that. Those wounds don't heal quickly, you know. Right. Uh, how long did the Irish problem happen, you know? And they're still not happy about it, you know, yeah. in the, with, with Northern Ireland. In any case, interesting thing about the Alamo, it was, it was a fight about taxes, right? The Civil War ultimately was a fight about taxes. They said it was about uh, slavery, but ultimately... If we could have raised taxes, we could have avoided that fight. You know, we could have come to a solution. The other problem, too, though, was that racism was just as bad in the North as it was in the South. Nobody wanted these free slaves to be wandering around and mixing with the white folk. That just, the, it was unacceptable to both sides. And, and one of the things that we learned in, in Gettysburg was that, uh, like, one of the characters in our uh, application is this, this guy uh, named Thomas Morris Ch Chester. And he organized the first black militia to go down to fight in, uh, um, in Gettysburg. And they gave him weapons. And they were the first militia in, Pen in Pennsylvania to get weapons. But then when they got there, they said, you're not gonna fight, you're just gonna do manual labor. And, and again, you know, it, it's 
I think that there's this, this perception that there was this pure line between North and South where the North was very, very pro-Black people, that they, you know, they were anti-slavery and this and that, but it wasn't, it wasn't that clear, and as it never is, you know. Like in the revolution, everybody thought it was, you know, uh, the patriots against the, the, the British, but there was a huge loyalist right. group of people during the revolution. And so the same with the Civil War. There were, there were people who wanted equality for blacks and, and there were people who wanted this society to mix together really well, but they were a very small minority relative to the rest of the, of the world at that time. And right. so one of the things like this, Thomas Morris Chester, he wanted uh, black people to be freed and sent to Africa. He, he wanted to set up, and, and then, of course, Liberia, it was established for that reason, but he never did go himself. So back in Texas, as you're thinking about the Civil War, when the Civil War first broke out, the main person who was against secession was Houston. Sam, right. Sam Houston yeah. was against secession. And the reason they didn't hang him uh, was because he was Sam Houston. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. they, they said, well, you can't think about that. <laughs> like the Washington but, of Texas, you can't, can't do that. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, he was totally against the Civil War and totally against secession. Again, nothing was ever black and white. It, it never is. Even New York City in the beginning of the war was talking about seceding. So it, was, it really was... Um, this weird gray area where it wasn't really so much a fight geographically north versus south but more of ideals mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you had states trade sides you know <laughs> it was just all kinds of weird stuff you know but um anyway during during the civil war uh texas of course was a strong uh supporter of in sending troops and and you had uh and the Texas side, like at, at, uh, at Gettysburg, they were ferocious in trying to get up Little Round Top and, and the fight there at, at Devil's Den. It was the Texans that led that primarily. And they, and they, they were ferocious fighters, you know, and, and, uh, and they pretty much still are. You know? Absolutely, <laughs> you, yeah. You can get in a fight in a bar in Texas without any problem. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, <clears throat> so when we when we built the Alamo, uh, this the application that, that we're talking about. I had built the Alamo four in uh, in the '90s, and it was a CD-ROM. And the whole time I was working on it, I was thinking about, boy, it'd be really cool if I could stand right there where that happened and watch it happen. And I had seen stuff about virtual reality even back then that it was coming, but it, it, it was a long time coming. And so uh, back about in 2017, uh, I, I was working with a woman who later became a partner in our company. She was saying, what would you do different if you were to do the Alamo now? And I said, well, of course, virtual reality, Pokemon just came out. We could do virtual reality and you can stand where Davy Crockett stood and watch him defend the battle, defend the, defend the fort. And so she said, well, you got to do it. And I said, well, one, it nearly killed me when I did it 20 years ago. And, uh, and I'm older. <laughs> and two, it takes a lot of money and it, it's hard to do. And she goes, oh, you're going to do it. And so, of course, we did it. One of the things about the Alamo, when you go to the Alamo, and this goes back in history, too, is that, that when the battle was over, Santa Ana destroyed the, the fort because he didn't want it to be used as a fort again. And so he left behind a general whose job was to tear down the Alamo. And so he destroyed a bunch of the, uh, the physical structure of the Alamo. And then after that, 
people looked at it as building material. You know, they wanted to move into it. And the Alamo had been uh, abandoned for about 100 years. It was, it was empty for a long time. People lived in the buildings, in the wall. The wall was all, all, all uh, made into uh, little apartments and people lived in there. But, but basically it had quit being a, 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 a church and a, and a mission. The, the, the friars had given up on it. And they never finished it. It never had a roof on it. Uh, the other missions in San Antonio all had roofs. They were, they were much more functional than the Alamo was. And so when, when the Texians moved in, the, the Mexicans had used it as a fort, and the General Coase, who was the commander of that, had, had built it up quite a bit. He was a, an engineer and understood what to do about building it up. And then, and then when the Texians moved in, they had an engineer who was a commander, and he spent a lot of time building it up. But all of them understood that it couldn't withstand cannon fire of any size cannon. And, and if you had a 20-pounder cannon, that those walls weren't going to stand. And so they, they knew it wasn't defendable. Unfortunately, they fled into the Alamo when, when Santa Ana's soldiers showed up. Just to back up a little bit, there was a battle of, of the Alamo before the famous Battle of the Alamo. This was when the, the Mexicans were inside with 1,800 troops inside, and they surrendered after several days because they, they knew it was untenable. They couldn't, mm -hmm. they couldn't manage it. And so they surrendered to Bowie and uh, uh, a bunch of the other uh, uh, Texians. And uh, Coase signed a letter that he wasn't going to come back to Texas, that he was done and he would leave. And so he left, and this was just before Christmas in, in 1835, and, and he went back, and Santa Ana was his brother-in-law. And Bowie was related to both of them through marriage to Veramendi, this woman named Veramendi, whose father was the, the, the Texian governor. And, and so they're all related. These people all knew each other. I mean, this was a very um, tight situation in the ruling class. And, and, and Texas had, at the time, about 20,000 settlers living there and about 20,000 slaves. And so um, real small. Everybody knew each other. You know, anything that happened, they, you know, look, old Pedro over there, he's all pissed off or whatever. And so that they, they knew very closely how each other thought about things, sort of like what we're talking about in the Civil War. And so Crockett came to Texas he lost in Congress, and he came to Texas to uh, to get elected into the Texas New Texas uh, Legislature. And so he he went down to, to Gonzales, which is a small town now outside of San Antonio, and said, "I want to get you know in your election." And they said, "Well, the election was a couple of weeks ago, but they haven't held held the election in San Antonio. You ought to go down there." And so he got there just about the same time Santa Ana showed up. <laughs> great timing, great timing. <laughs> and he said. He said, I can't run because I'm too well known. And so he went into the Alamo. And um, Jim Bowie, who was in his 40s, was real famous. And uh, somebody told me that, that those two people at that time were as famous as anybody you can think of nowadays, like, say, Beyonce and Jay-Z or something. They were that famous in, in, in the rest of the world, you know, in the rest of the United States. And so they, they were kind of stuck in there. And uh, and one of the things about the Alamo, it, it a lot, there's a lot of myths about it. Uh, one is that they drew uh, that Travis drew a line in the sand and they they refused to uh, to uh, leave the Alamo. But uh, that story was first told in the 1880s, and so we know it wasn't true. But but in reality, they, they did. Uh, decide to stand. You know, they all decided to stand. And part of it was you're not going to leave your brother. 
and, and, uh, um, and they all stayed. And so these guys who were, if they moved in next door to you, you'd probably call the police every night. You know, they, they, were, they were a rough bunch of guys. I discovered a, when I was doing research on it, I discovered a letter from a, a, a farmer Texas between Gonzales and San Antonio who had written a, a letter to the Texian governor and he said, Texian army just left and I would sooner have the Mexican army camped in my front yard as to have the entire, as, as to have the, the Texian army come within a mile of my place. <laughs> so what they didn't yeah. steal, they, they killed, ate, or raped and I don't want them back. Yeah. And, wow. and it was like, and those guys became the heroes and founders of the state of Texas. And, and it was because of what they did at that guy's farm. It was because they stood and they did what, what was expected and, and what was, you know, beyond the call of duty by staying in that fort. And so they were ordinary people who did extraordinary things. And, and that's what you find in history all the time is that ordinary people, they're not made out of marble and they did extraordinary things. And so one of the cool things that we did with the Alamo, since the Alamo was completely destroyed, just to go back from about five minutes ago, is since the Alamo was completely destroyed, we rebuilt the Alamo in 3D, full scale. And so you can go to the Alamo and stand there and look through our app and you can see the entire Alamo rebuilt exactly where it was. And you can walk around, you can walk into the rooms, you can go into the room where, where Travis wrote his famous victory or death letter and you can see the letter laying on his desk. You can see his rifle laying on the bed. You can go into the room where Bowie died and, and you, you can find a picture of his wife there. She and her children died uh, just before that, a couple of years before of probably cholera. And he was in mourning for her the rest of his life. And so it, it's really amazing. And it, it's six and a half acres. You walk around the whole six and a half acres and go all around the fort. You can go into the church. You can go up, up to the to the walls. You can actually walk through the walls and see it from the outside. The entire thing at full scale. It, it's a, really amazing. And then we built spots all over where you can step on the spot and rise up above and watch the battle happen beneath you. And so you can see the Mexican army uh, in the last little bit as they roll a cannon up and blow the, the barricade down in, in front of the church and go inside the church and capture uh, Crockett and, and the last six or seven guys that were with him. And then they executed them with their sabers outside the church once they dragged them out in the courtyard. And you watch the whole thing. But you're watching it from above so that we're removed from the totality of the violence. Right, you, know, you can see it happen, but you don't see it. And so that, that's how we get it into schools, is, is we keep the, the violence at a, at a remove. But, but you can watch, there's, I think there's about 18, 14, 18 points around the Alamo where you can watch those things happen. And uh, it's, it, it's a really, really compelling experience. And every time I've gone and given tours with people around, one, they don't realize how big the Alamo was. Because when you're standing there, it's basically just the church and one piece, one remnant of uh, the hospital that was there. And that's it. And, but now you, you can go and see it as it was. Out of, out of curiosity, have you, um, I know you're, you're, telling, you're telling the story, you've done the research, obviously. Have you ever had to fight back or did you receive pushback from denying the, uh, the famous line in the sand or, or that Crockett was captured and he didn't die swinging old Betsy. Did you ever bump into that? Uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, not a lot. And, and oh, when, okay. I, when I first did, did the, uh, the Alamo back in, in the 90s, early 90s, the Daughters of Republic of Texas owned the Alamo. They controlled it. 
and, and I anticipated that when we told that story, that we would get pushed back from them. We got nothing back from them. Of course, we used the best historians in the state of Texas. We used the author named T.R. Fehrenbach, historian and author, as our, our senior um, historian. And then we also used Dr. Stephen Harden, who wrote Te Texian Iliad, uh, as our, our primary content writer. And, uh, and so we had uh, the script for that was 1,500 pages, which if you think about it, it's like a lot. And, uh, and so we, we had, uh, my philosophy of history is, is that nothing just happens isolated, right? So, so to start this history of the Alamo, you have to understand why they all got there. So we went all the way back to the Bering Strait when the first humans crossed into the oh, New wow. World. And we traced the migration of, of the uh, Native Americans and why did, why did this fight wind up at this spot? Imagine if you were in a balloon floating over in 1836, crossing all this empty land, and all of a sudden there's 5,000 guys surrounding 180 guys in this stone fort, and you're going, what in the world is that all about? You know, it's, right. it's just it's kind of a, a strange uh, thing that, that just kind of happened. But if you can understand what happened with the Indians and the Comanches and then the settlers and all that stuff, then it, then it becomes, okay, I understand the context of this whole thing. It all makes sense to me. And the context of why Santa Ana chose to kill everybody who was there. And we also did the other battles, Goliad and all the battles around and the runaway scrape and, and also uh, the final battle at um, San Jacinto. In doing that, you can understand the context of everything that happened within one, the, the Alamo itself, but within the Texas Revolution, why, why that came about. And so in, in this application, we focus more on, on just the Battle of the Alamo. We have support materials that we're putting on websites and stuff like that. But primary reason is because it's mobile and it can't hold that much. You, you can't have that huge of a download onto it. But the context, it means everything, you know. And, and so in, in terms of people pushing back, they're, they're like Gettysburg and everybody else. There's people who are going to argue about, uh, you know, how big was the gun? How, how, how far apart were their buttons on their coat? That kind of stuff. Right. And I've, I've, been, I've been involved in conversations with historians about stuff like that, yeah. where it goes on for hours. They love that stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. but in terms of like, one of the things we did with the first Alamo was we took the major myths of the Alamo. And I did this again with this one, with the support materials we built. We took the major myths and then we, we showed you where they came from and let you judge whether you think it's true or not. Like the death of, of uh, uh, Crockett, there were two people had the exact same story. One was Sam Houston and the other was this lieutenant colonel who wrote his diary from the Mexican army. Same exact story. The De La Pena diary, right? Yeah, De La Pena. And they both told their story contemporaneous to the event right? Just after the event. You have to think that's probably true. But then the other stories tended to, to take on a life of their own way after the event. So if you can figure something first time you saw that story pop up was in the 1870s, you pretty much know that it's not true. You know? right. and, and one of, the, one of the characters in the Alamo that's really interesting is, is uh, this, this old lady, I can't remember what her name was, but she, um, she claimed to have been there and held Bowie when he died and held Travis when he died. Both of them died hundreds and hundreds of yards apart, but she held them both, right? And it turns out that it was hard to hold those two guys when you were in jail in San Antonio for prostitution. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
but she made a good living at it, you know. Hey, hey, you know, we won't, <laughs> the rest we won't of her tell, life. we won't tell, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, yeah. It's it, it's real interesting when you and and one of the things we do with the history is that is that we go to original source. Everything we deal with is original source. So we we don't deal with, you know, somebody wrote a book and and they told this part of the story. We we want to know what is the original source for that story and get down to it. And so if I'm looking at something and I'm able to present to you and say, this is what he wrote on the day it happened versus this is what so-and-so wrote three years later, who do you think is closer to the truth? And probably finding the exact truth is very difficult. Anybody that's been in a car wreck knows that, you know, yeah. you can't remember exactly what happened. I don't know if the car was red or green. I don't know, you know, right. and so, those those types of eyewitness things are hard, but if you can have two people self, tell the same story who are not connected to each other, then it's probably close to true. Oh yeah, that's always the detective part of being an historian and and taking these primary sources and picking them apart. You know, mm -hmm. again, it, it's tough because you got to figure out: is there an agenda here? Is there something they're pushing here, um, political or? Oh, yeah. not. So you have to really dig in to find, you know, okay, this person says this, this person says this, they're not connected. They both have their biases, but what do they agree on? And probably somewhere in the gray is the truth. Yeah. One, uh, one of the things we did with the Alamo is that, that the front of the Alamo church that we, that we rendered for this, it shows uh, it was constructed like a fort at the top. The, the thing that you usually see is that it's all kind of beat up and torn up on the top. And uh, one of our historian artists that we worked with, he did research and he found a drawing that an army colonel, Mexican army colonel had drawn of the front of the Alamo during the battle. And it, it had crinolines, that's it, crinolines. Wow. And so, uh, is it crinoline? No. Uh, anyway, whatever that word is, where you got the, the, the things like an old fashioned fort. But right, right. it was drawn just like that. And so, and, and then you had people talking about that it was built as a fort. What happened though was when Santa Ana left that that general behind, he tore down those things, you know, to, because he didn't want it to be used as a fort. And and when we were doing the study of what the the, the lunette in the front or tambour in the in the front gate was, uh, he had found all these different references of writings and stuff like that of the people of what what they built. The the guy the engineer who who designed most of the Alamo's defenses had to leave because of family illness. And he described exactly what he built. And so we built it that way. And then I happened to meet with the archeologist who had done the dig of the, the tambour and years before. And I showed her and, and she got to walk into the tambour for the first time. And she said, my God, it's exactly what we found. This is, you, you have put what exactly what is found. It was much longer. Than, than people had thought. They originally thought it was a net, which was just a half moon, but it actually stuck way out. And they had a whole bunch of timbers where they had actually built a, a sort of roof around it so that it could protect them from, from uh, shells coming down on top of them. And then they put sandbags on top of that. Really well defined. And then I've had people comment, like somebody said, how could they build something like that? I, I didn't answer them because it defies answering. But, you know, People built stuff back in those days. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, right. if you went to New York City in 1836, they had multi-story buildings. Yes, you know? absolutely, yeah. 
they knew how to build stuff, you know, but he was saying, Oh, how could they have that technology? Oh, uh, you know, it's logs and shovels, you know, <laughs> can do attitude, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and this is going to protect me from dying. And right. That, so that's good inspiration there, you know? Yeah. It gives you a lot of, a lot of inspiration. So with, with the application, it gives you this ability to experience the Alamo in a way that, it hasn't been experienced since 1836. You, you can actually see the way it was. You can see the rooms. you can see, uh, and, and it overlays when you're standing in the plaza. Right now there's a whole bunch of like t-shirt shops and wax museums and stuff like that. And overlays over all those things and blocks them out so you can see what, it, what, it, what the real fort looked like at that time. And it, it's quite dramatic difference between then and now. And then, and then also to be able to wander around all the places and watch the battle. Right, right. But of course, all of that did not exist by the time of the Civil War, right? All of that was gone? Yeah, yeah, most of it was gone because they, the, uh, the townspeople used those rock walls as building materials. And so they, they oh. came in and I think the city actually sold it as building materials. And uh, so they wow. tore down the walls and hauled it off to build, you know, other buildings. And the, uh, the, the Alamo, you know, was part of the Texas defense for, uh, for a while when, when Texas was a republic and when it became a union, then that was the headquarters for the U.S. Army and they had a warehouse there. Then it became uh, a bar. It became a, uh, a general merchandise store. They added on this whole big wing with this big multi-story general store there. When the uh, uh, Union Army came in, they built the 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 front on it, that that very iconic front that they have and they built a, a roof over it so that they could store everything that they had oh so that iconic and front actually wasn't part of the alamo during the battle that's that not even close by the federal yeah. wow yeah. okay yeah so that was built by the federal soldier and and they they hired a french architect to design it because they wanted it to be pretty and he came up with that that yeah. look you know that the alamo has so then after the Civil War, and, and at the beginning of the Civil War, there was, uh, you know, the uh, Union was stationed there. The Texans wanted to take it over, and uh, the Union commander didn't want to surrender it, but he didn't want to fight for it either. And so they had a standoff, and he got an agreement that if he took his troops out of Texas, they could keep their arms. So they weren't surrendering, they were, they were just being moving relocated. their location. Yeah. But they left all the ammunition and everything that was inside the... And the Texans used it as a warehouse during the Civil War, too. Don't you think maybe it's a little strange, no, that at a site where there was such a bloody battle, multiple bloody battles, right? Federal forces were just pretty cool with just walking away. Kind of surprising. They knew that they couldn't do anything with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was it was going to be bad. And, uh, and so they, they're like... Because uh, the Texans showed up with Ben McCullough, who was a big Texas Ranger. hero of Texas Ranger and hero from from the Revolution, and so they showed up with a ton of people, and uh, and it was obvious that they were not going to be able to defend the place, and whether he wanted to fight to the death too, <laughs> I think he, he decided. Yeah, he was seventy one years old, and it's like, yeah, if you want it that bad, you can have it. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so he signed an agreement, and and probably. And, he lost probably a lot of his command. A lot of guys were already resigning, so that didn't put a lot of faith. Yeah, and he he was actually a Confederate sympathizer, and he uh, he went back to Virginia, and he was kicked out of the American Army, and then and he died 
like two years later, he was pretty sick and he died two years later. He never was in the Confederate Army. So he, he had kind of a bad end to his career. <laughs> and so, yeah. But, but then a after the war, you know, the, then the United States came back and, and uh, I think they built Fort Sam Houston pretty quick after the war, which is a much larger installation. Still is a fort these days. And then during World War One, there's pictures where they have fighter planes, you know, biplanes out in front, and they were recruiting soldiers there in front of the Alamo, you know, to, to go fight in World War One. Oh, wow. It's some interesting pictures of, of uh, those old days. <clears throat> and then the, the daughters, the, it was it was being destroyed pretty regularly. They, they you know, they made it into all different things. And uh, in 1906, the daughters of the Texas Revolution, the DRT, a re revolution of Texas uh, formed a couple of women started it they raised money to save it and then the state of Texas let them run it and they ran it till like 2015 or 20 I think about 2015 they they ran it and they, they did a good job to save it and uh, but it was still sort of old, old ladies club thing you know they didn't have a lot of money to to do what they needed to do with it they had a, a extensive library in their collection of stuff. Everybody donated stuff there. When I, I I spent months doing research inside the library and the librarian explained to me that the original people who started filing stuff, their filing system was say, my name is Mike. So I would start out uh, Monday morning. I would start, I get my first document. I'd put M dash one. And then the second document M dash two. Well, I'd come back on Tuesday or Wednesday I'd start over M dash one M dash two, oh, and so, so it it was it, yeah. it was t totally totally messed up, and and when I was going through the archives, I found this uh, map, and it was about twenty four inches wide, maybe a little wider, on uh, lambskin, and it was absolutely beautiful, and it was from fifteen seventy one, so less than a hundred years from the discovery of the new world. And it had, uh, you know, the dragons in the sea and all that it was absolutely beautiful. And you could see where it had been stitched into a book. And so I asked the librarian, I said, what is this? Where did this come from? And she goes, I've never seen it before. Where did, where did you find it? I said, it was in the bottom of a drawer in, in a, a flat file. And she wow. goes, I've, I've never seen that before. That's incredible. And so uh, it w was really interesting to, to be in, in, in that library. And I think that the, the daughters maintained all the documents from that when they when they left the Alamo and moved to a different location, so that that document is still probably with the daughters. Do you have a picture of that? Out of curiosity, or no? I, I do. I have a scan of it somewhere in one of my files. Yeah, oh, we man, used it as backgrounds in the first Alamo. If you'd ever uh, uh, get the chance, map. I'd love to see that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have to hunt it down and get it to It, it was beautiful. We took a photographer and, and a scanner in and pho photographed and scanned everything we could. And we were in the state archives for three months as well, scanning documents and taking photographs of documents. Well, after doing all this research and working with these uh, experts on the Alamo, other experts of the on the Alamo, what mm -hmm. books would you recommend to anyone who wants to read about the battle or even the Civil War ties, if there is a book out? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the first book is, is uh, Stephen Harden's Technaliad. That, that is a really great book about the Alamo. He wrote it back in the 90s or early 90s. And uh, there's, there's some updates of stuff that's been learned since then. And he keeps telling me that he's going to 
write a, an, a second addition to that. The other is, is T.R. Fehrenbach. And Fehrenbach was an incredible writer. And he wrote Lone Star and he also wrote Comanche, which are both about Texas. And Comanche is about the Comanche Indians and their influence on Texas. And then the other one is, is a really cool book about the war with Mexico. It's called A Glorious Defeat, Mexico and Its War with the U.S. by Timothy Henderson. And that book talks a lot about the early troubles with Texas and the Civil War and, and the connections between those. And, and also all the generals who were involved and all that. And, uh, you know, Grant was one of the guys who was there. He was a captain, I think, at the time. And, and then an, an, the other one that I told you about before is called The Impending Crisis of the South and How to Meet It by Hinton Rowan Helper. The only place you can get that is Google Books. Mm. So you know how they scanned all these books? Yeah. It is so interesting to read it because the guy was a statistician when statistics was brand new. He, he was the one who was coming up with all these numbers about by the book of numbers, this is why we're losing. And, and, and he wrote this in 1860. He released it in 1860. And everybody in the South hated him for it. <laughs> that is not funny. <laughs> and so he, but it was true, you know? And, uh, and, and, and he, his contention in this book was slavery is ruining the South and we need to stop it, not for the sake of the slaves. His family were slave owners. For the sake of, the, the slave owners, we need to stop this. Anyway, they uh, uh, finally, uh, he, he wrote the book and then, you know, Civil War started 1861. So it didn't have a whole lot of impact on what actually happened, but it does give us some insight into what was going on in the South at, the, at that time. Right. And, uh, it, it's very, very interesting book and, and it's free. And that, <laughs> that's one of the nice things about it. But I recommend anybody that's interested in the Civil War to read that book and find out what people in the South thought about slavery and thought about um, the e economic of, of the South at that time. Well, you uh, also mentioned uh, Stephen Hardin, right? Yes. Um, we have to get him on the podcast at some point. Oh yeah, he's great. And he, he actually worked on Gettysburg and he had worked on the Alamo with us. He worked on both Alamos. And so one of, the, one of the things that I went through when I was thinking about doing the Alamo the second time was I thought I can't do this without Stephen Hardin. And so I called him up kind of half hoping he would say, I'm not going to wear that again. And he said, if you're doing it, I'm doing it too. And I go, oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> now I got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but he's just absolute pleasure to work with and, uh, and, and knows tons of stuff. And if he doesn't, he'll find it for you. And uh, he, he, he told, me, told me this expression, which I, I use a lot, is the, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> and so... <laughs> He said, uh, I guarantee you that uh, most of the people in the Alamo wore, wore underwear, but nobody wrote about it. So we can't say that they didn't have underwear just because nobody wrote about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but we went through that because we were trying to discover uh, what the gates look like to the Alamo. And, and nobody could find a reference to the gates. And so some people were saying, since there's no reference to the gates, then there wasn't a gate. And, oh. and Hardin's point was, who the hell builds a fort and doesn't build a gate? Right, exactly. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Just because yeah. they didn't write about it, they considered it probably too mundane to, to put too right. much effort into it. Of course, right. we had a damn gate. The house has a door, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, probably if, if we could sit down with one of the defenders and talk to him, 
being through going through all those battles, he'd be pretty surprised that you're interested in the gate of all things. <laughs> yeah, because nobody broke through the. They went around, you know. They crawled yeah. over the walls, and and then they uh, got in into the people who were in the tambor, yeah. you know, through the gate the back way. You know. And but as historians, we we like the particulars. We're very strange like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah and, and and to drill down, you know. You, you want to drill as far down into that as you can get. Absolutely, so, yeah. Like I said, I, I've been involved in conversations between historians where eventually I had to say, okay, so can we agree that it was a cannon? Yeah, oh yeah, it was a cannon. Okay, <laughs> yeah, at least. Agree the, that it was oh, uh, yeah, right. Pointed in that direction? <laughs> yes, we can. Okay, so we're going to build the cannons, going to point in that direction. Yeah. <laughs> and the exact yeah. circumference of the barrel. I don't think anybody's going to be able to measure in our app. Right. <laughs> well, where, where can people get fun. the app? You can get the app at the App Store or the Play Store, and it's called Experience Real History, the, the Alamo. And you can also go to experiencerealhistorythealamo.com, and you can find out about the – you can see the app there. And then, of course, Gettysburg. Uh, it's Gettysburg, a nation divided. And you can get that at the App Store or the Play Store. And you can also go to our website, uh, quantumera.com, and you can find information there. About Absolutely. It. And uh, selfless plug, if you use the code Untold Civil War, no spaces, goes to support the show at the same time when you download Gettysburg and Nation Divided. Highly recommend. Uh, I've been using it a lot for my videos now that I'm doing on uh, YouTube. So oh, cool. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast yet again and uh, sharing these uh, untold stories with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is fun. Thank you for listening to that episode while you march shoulder to shoulder with the men of the 29th USCT, rode with the Cavaliers of the 7th Virginia Cavalry, adding the final touches to that history paper due tomorrow, working off that hangover from a well-earned weekend, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to Craig Duncan for the use of his music. Please go like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, and follow us on Instagram. Really helps support the show. And if you're really ambitious, please become a Patreon supporter using the link in the show notes. With a high enough tier, you'll get a chance to have your questions answered by the experts. But anyway, bye for now, and I hope you tune in next time.